HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. All right, welcome back to Heritage Radio Network on tour. My name's Kat Johnson, and today we're broadcasting Heritage Radio Network on tour from Denver, Colorado. We are here for the Slow Food Nations Festival. Uh, we're right in the heart of downtown at Larimer Square, which was where the Taste Marketplace is. And if you're in Denver, come on down and see us. Uh, we'll be here until 5 p.m. today, Saturday, and we're here tomorrow on Sunday from about 11 to 3. Um, so come by and catch some people talking about food. Right now, I am joined by Dr. David Shields. Um, he is the chairman of the Carolina Gold Rice Foundation, and he is also a um, professor at the University of South Carolina in Columbia. That's true. Welcome, David. Thank you so much. And uh, in the world of slow food, I'm also the chair of the Arc of Taste for the South. So Yes, that's a great place for us to start. What is the Arc of Taste? The Arc of Taste is the global register of all of the most historically resonant um, flavorful and endangered foods of every nation. And it also encompasses certain signature preparations or dishes that are connected with places. So it just isn't plants and animals. It's also the sausages, the breads, the porridges, the beers, whatever became important to a community and a food that uh, was the basis of a kind of local identity. And what are some of the foods that you've seen be placed on the Ark of Taste? Well, in the South, we've had tremendous numbers of them that are quite important. Uh, the Bradford watermelon, the tastiest watermelon of the Old South, uh, was something that we actually rediscovered in, in 2012 after we thought it was extinct. And it turned out that the eighth generation of the family that uh, grew it was still maintaining uh, the seed stock uh, in Sumter, South Carolina. We have the white velvet okra, one of the extraordinarily mystical okras <laughs> of the South uh, that looks like a white candle uh, and has very little of the slipperiness or gooiness of okra that some people object to. We also have uh, the American chestnut, uh, which at one time was the dominant tree of the South and a whole foodways developed around it uh, with strong Native American inflections. Uh, but when the blight came in 1901 and destroyed the forests of the east, uh, and the chestnut was the dominant hardwood of, of the eastern forest, we had a, an extraordinary sort of revolution in 
the foodways of the South where the central nut no longer was there. And the American chestnut is sweeter, smaller, uh, and I would say more versatile than either the Asian chestnut or the Italian chestnut that you sometimes find at Christmas time when your local grocery stores are giving you the chestnuts to roast by the open fire. <laughs> so we should all be roasting the southern chestnut. One, one of these days, and I would say uh, three or four years from now, a blight-resistant American chestnut will be released by the American Chestnut Foundation. And when that becomes uh, generally available, there will be a whole range of foods that once were common, like deviled chestnuts, chestnut souffle, chestnut pudding, chestnut-fed pork, mm. chestnut-fed venison ham, um, that will once again um, come to the tables of the region. Are, yeah, are there a lot of foods, like dishes like that, that have basically become extinct because the ingredient has become extinct? Right, uh, or uh, the ingredient became sort of eclipsed. Mm. One of the really interesting uh, stories about uh, ingredients is bene, which is the uh, low-oil sesame that was one of the African diaspora foods that came over uh, on the slave ships into the American South. And the sesame that was grown in West Africa uh, had about 45% oil. And when you press the oil out of it, and, and that bene oil was the favorite salad oil of the South uh, from the 1820s to the 1880s, there was this cake left over. And that was used to fry greens with. It was a kind of substitute for roux, uh, a basis for stews and soups. Uh, and the Gullah Geechee cooks of the uh, Low Country, that strip of land that extends from Jacksonville, North Carolina, all the way down to Jacksonville, Florida, that goes in 100 miles inland. All of the Gullah Geechee chefs use that as one of the secret ingredients of their, their foodways. Well, that, that low oil sesame had disappeared. Uh, in 1945, a non-shattering high oil sesame variety uh, was developed called K-10. University of Kansas developed it, and it took over the sesame market in the United States. So this older, flavorful sesame, the Bene, uh, was no longer uh, grown uh, or grown exclusively in certain southern plantations for birds because northern hunters loved to rent out these plantations as shooting uh, preserves. Mm. And that's where some of the old material survived. We also found some of that in Trinidad recently when we went down there searching an old variety of rice. They also had the bene that they had took, taken out. This was a group of... Uh, of uh, enslaved African-Americans who, uh, during the War of 1812, uh, accepted an invitation by the British to fight on their side. They would become British Royal Marines and fight against their 
plantation masters with the promise of liberation and land. And lo and behold, the British actually fulfilled that promise, sent them down to Trinidad. And they had all come from the Georgia Sea Islands. And they brought with them all of their rice, sweet potatoes, corn, and Bene with them down into southern Trinidad. Is this the same group that there was a feature in the New York Times recently about the rice that was rediscovered? That's right. Uh, uh, They're called Americans. M-E-R-I-K-I-N-S. And they live around Princetown in southern Trinidad. And they have this lost rice that uh, is uh, tremendous in terms of its culinary qualities and the fact that it's an upland rice. You can grow it like a garden crop. It was called a missing link, wasn't it? It was. Uh, There are very few rices that you can point to a kind of genesis of. It comes out of West Africa in 1787. We know the ship that it came on, how many gallons of rice came into the South. George, uh, Thomas Jefferson was instrumental in distributing it to people. And uh, one of the things that happens is down in Georgia, the slaves recognized this as one of their old rices. They adopt it as a patch rice in their huck patches. And uh, when they head down to Trinidad in 18... 18- 15, 18, 16, they take the rice with them. And um, in December of 1816, I, uh, I walked up this hill and there was the seventh generation descendant of one of these fighters growing this rice and it was about a week away from harvest. And uh, a beautiful golden hill of this uh, uh, bearded rice And he pointed across this ravine and said, you see those birds lined up there? They know when the rice is ripe. Whoa. (laughs) When the first bird flies over, we begin the harvest. Whoa. (laughs) That sounds kind of like Game of Thrones. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Well, another another, um, crop on the Ark of Taste that I wanted to ask you about is the Sapelo Island purple ribbon cane. Oh, yes. Um, You know... Sugar was one of the great global commodities. And um, there's a problem growing sugar in North America, and that is sugarcane is very cold and tolerant, and it will go bad if it gets down to zero. So um, there were many attempts, uh, and you have to realize huge fortunes were made in Brazil, by the Portuguese, uh, by the English in Barbados, uh, uh, growing sugarcane and feeding the insatiable desire of the world for sweetness. And uh, what happened was um, in about 1810, a sugarcane variety uh, gets shipped up from West Indies and they called it Purple Ribbon, and it was more cold-tolerant. And a man named uh, Thomas Spaulding on Sapelo Island was among the first to get it. And he had a sugar mill, and he started generating, for the first time, extraordinary amounts of uh, white grain, grain sugar for the North American market. And it drove 
the prices of sugar down. And you have to realize that this had all sorts of consequences. With sugar cheap, you could preserve your entire fruit crop. You didn't have to worry about it rotting on the produce market. You'd make preserves, you'd make jellies, you'd make jams. All of your fruit now could be there for the future. So the 1810s, 20s become this golden age of jelly. Mm. <laughs> uh, and it's all because of this sugar on this one plantation. Well, skip to the future. It's now 21st century. Most of Sapelo Island, where Spalding's plantation and mill were, is owned by the state of Georgia, except for land owned by 60 permanent residents, all of whom who are descendants of the Spalding plantation slaves. And all sorts of developers want to get their hands on that land, so they're ramping up the uh, property taxes. And there's this visionary matriarch on this island. Her name was Cornelia Bailey. And she said, we've got to get a revenue stream. We've got to get money. And she said, let's look to our agricultural heritage. And there are several things that Sapelo Island had. One was a uh, Sea Island red pea, which is also on the Ark of Taste, uh, a deep, earthy, splendid pea, which is the ideal ingredient for Hop and John mixed with Carolina gold rice. So she started with that. But the truth of the matter is those peas could have been magical and couldn't have commanded more than $2 on, on the market. So she was looking for other things. And she invited the Carolina Gold Rice Foundation down to brainstorm. And we saw the mill and we asked ourselves, well, what, what variety of sugar was it that they grew? Maybe we could bring back the sugar cane. And we were thinking that sugar is an interestingly diverse product. You don't want to compete with the international grain sugar people because they're hurting. Uh, sugar beet sugar is driving the prices of granular sugar down. But cane syrup is one of the great artisan products of the South, and rum is something, and marmalades made with various things. We started thinking about the jelly potentials, since it, that sugar from that island created the American jelly boom. So we started doing the research, and that's one of the things that the Carolina Gold Rice Foundation is famous for. We research the ingredients and then seek them out. And we found that there were two varieties of sugar they grew, one from Tahiti and the other one called Purple Ribbon, which was the cold tolerant one. Neither one was in any germplasm bank or uh, cane library in the world. And, and we checked. But uh, the South is a very strange place. And one of the things that exists in the South is a network of sugar cane producers uh, who make cane syrup. And they're these backcountry guys who have family cane that they've kept alive for generations. And we were banking that one of them would have it. Well, we searched and we searched and we couldn't find anything. So I decided we'll, we'll backbreed it into existence. There are a couple varieties of sugar cane that are descendants of it, uh, Louisiana purple, blue ribbon cane, 
what we'll do is get a herbarium sample or a sample from a local historical society from the 1840s, get a genetic fingerprint, and Dr. Stephen Kresovich, the great cane geneticist, would backbreed it into existence. We searched for half a year in every darn historical society in the South and couldn't find anything. And then one night, while I was buying shag bar kickery nuts off of eBay, there are certain ingredients you can't get on the regular market but appear because people have backyard trees of rare nuts and stuff like this. I put in purple ribbon sugarcane in eBay, and there was a hit from southern Mississippi, some guy who was going to send jo- sell joints of this cane. I had Clemson University, uh, my, uh, the uh, University of uh, Dr. Kresovich, buy every, every cane, and it's with that cane that uh, Doc Bill Thomas and Jerome Dixon planted out uh, the fields of purple ribbon sugar cane uh, and have restored it and just last year uh, produced the first bottles of cane syrup. It was so wonderful tasting that, uh, that two restaurateurs bought every single bottle that was on the market. Sean Brock and Linton Hopkins, oh, right? there they were. <laughs> uh, so the public doesn't even know the glory of this sweet, wonderful thing. Next year, though, you may be able to buy it. So I got to meet Doc Bill and Jerome in Charleston in March of this year, and I got to taste the cane syrup. And it's, it's really incredible to see how excited they are to have worked with every, you, know, you and Dr. Krestovich and Glenn Roberts um, to kind of bring this cane back to the island. What, like, what does that mean to be able to restore and repatriate a, a crop like that to a place that's so significant to it historically? Well, it means several things. Um, uh, there are foods on which communities are based, where people stake their identity. And I'm sure that many people have during the holidays, family meals with certain dishes, with certain ingredients that are the key to their identity, you know? Whether it's that sweet potato pie that somebody's doing or uh, that casserole using uh, the Kentucky Wonder Bean or whatever. And it's important to have that sense of place and home food. It's also important that Farmers realize that there are ingredients out there that are not soybeans or number two dent corn that um, you can grow and that you can take pride in because it's part of a, a communal heritage. A lot of people who are farming these days are in a strange situation where they find themselves rather anonymous actors in an international uh, situation. But if you're growing something that is famous in your locality, uh, if the corn that you're growing is Jimmy Red and uh, the greatest bourbon makers in the South are seeking it out uh, and newspaper stories are being written about it and you can show your kids this is what your mom and dad grow. 
that creates a sense within the families that do farming of we are engaged in something that is important, that has a legacy to it, a history, uh, and that it is not the instantaneous um, momentary combustion of a fashion world or a commodity world. And it also helps preserve the biodiversity and like a, a bigger picture is like a lot of these crops, if someone doesn't kind of take ownership of them, they're going to continue to become extinct. Right. Uh, one of the things that the Carolina Gold Rice Foundation did and with Slow Food Assisted was that we spent three years trying to describe, we, we did the research like in old agricultural journals and seed catalogs, what was being grown. And um, one of the strange things, by the 1990s, uh, the cultivation system had changed so much and so much had been lost that no one knew uh, what had been lost. And that's a terrible situation to find yourself in. Only collards and okra remained of the traditional field crops that were still in cultivation. So we spent three years and we came out with a list of everything, the co-crops, the provision crops, everything that made up low country cuisine. And by 2006, we had this list in hand and it became an issue of finding them and bringing them back. And for every year since then, three, four, five ingredients. And even now, um, there are things that we're hunting down. We're getting close to the last objects on the list. And um, the most heartening message of this, uh, this in, is that um, when something truly was the most flavorful ingredient of a certain category, the, the best cabbage or the best bean or the, or the best oilseed, there's somebody somewhere on the landscape who recognized that and kept it going. Uh, when we started off, there was no assurance that that was the case. Um, we didn't have the faith that we should have had in people's ability to recognize the superlative things that are part of their lives. So uh, it's a matter of finding them. And sometimes you cruise back roads looking for tall corn. Sometimes you look in seed banks. Sometimes you engage in uh, discussions with uh, families that you know have kept certain uh, apples or uh, oranges or peas as part of a family legacy. And then uh, there's another thing. There are savants. Uh, people who have been seed savers in the South who've collected these things. There are a number of them who are speaking here today. John Koikendal of Blackberry Farm, Tennessee, has collections of about 900 different varieties of beans that were grown in the Appalachian and numbers of corn varieties. Uh, and uh, Creighton Lee Calhoun collected every old apple that existed in the South. Wow. Uh, and uh, Bill Best in Kentucky uh, collected the beans of the northern part of the Appalachian. So there are people who have had that sort of 
um, they decided to become the living libraries of their growing systems. And they started collecting at a time when things were still there. So one of the things that the South as a region can boast is that because of interventions by people, because there's been an attempt to save the seed, we are one of the few places, the Southwest is another place that does this, that can look at the old recipes that they have and recreate the original taste of them because we have the original ingredients. I know that Sean Brock is one chef who's doing a lot of work like this, trying to both rediscover some of these lost crops and then translate that into historical recipes. Is there anyone else um, in the South that's doing that similar type of work? There are lots of people and different communities too. Um, I mentioned the fact that we work closely with the Gullah Geechee community, the African-American community. Chef B.J. Dennis, uh, an important figure in Charleston, has attempted to collect the foodways of the, uh, of the southeast, um, particularly the coastal zone. And we supply the Gullah Geechee uh, nation with um, seeds. Uh, and he works to recreate the recipes um, we've been working with distillers in the South. Forrest Parker and Revival, uh, Ashley Christensen. Uh, th- there are people all over the South who realize that these seeds, these ingredients are important. And indeed, Eduardo Jordan, who won the Best New Chef of the James Beard Awards this last year, with his restaurant June Baby out in Seattle. He requested that we ship the seeds out so his farmers in the Willamette Valley uh, can uh, can grow the things. That's awesome. And, and so we sent him a box of seeds, awesome. I don't know, a year and a half ago. And he said that it's very difficult for people in the Willamette Valley to grow cowpeas, but he's got people down in California growing them. And uh, he uses that stuff all the time. Very cool. And one other crop we didn't mention that I wanted to bring up because it's a story of how this can be so close to being impossible is the African runner peanut. Uh, yes, that's, a, that's an interesting ingredient. Um, the ancestral peanut of the South is a smaller, sweeter, oilier peanut than the peanut that we're familiar with, either the Spanish, the Valencia, or the Virginia roasting peanut, which is the favorite peanut you get when you get a bag of salted roasted peanuts. Uh, It came over in the 17th century uh, and um, was the standard peanut grown in the South uh, for hundreds of years. Uh, And a peanut industry grew up in North Carolina around Wilmington. And the oil quality of this peanut was so great that a lot of the peanuts were shipped to France to produce oil for, uh, for soap. Uh, that, I don't know, the unguent quality or the slipperiness. I, I guess there was a tactile thing about it or a luxuriousness. But um, it's a small peanut and it's very difficult to harvest. And uh, big peanuts are easier to pick up uh, mechanically or by hand. 
And so in the early 20th century, even though it tasted better, sweeter, whatever, it was a great confectioner's peanut, it stopped being grown in large quantities. In the 1930s, it stopped almost entirely. But North Carolina State was setting up a peanut breeding program, so it went out to every peanut farmer in the state collecting peanuts, what was grown. And uh, one of the things that they did pick up was some of the examples of this Carolina African runner peanut. So when I was looking for it, I uh, got in contact with um, um, peanut breeder in North Carolina State uh, who was in charge of their archive. And I said, do you have any peanuts that either have the name Carolina or African to them? And he said, we have two, Carolina 4 and Carolina 8. There are 20 seeds of each that were shipped to Dr. Brian Ward of Clemson University. And he grew them out. I think 14 of the 20 of Carolina 4 were viable. And that was the one, the one with the flat habit, the proper seed density. And we knew it was right because Sir Hans Sloan collected one of these peanuts off a slave ship in Jamaica in 1693, and it survives in the British Library. So you can do a genetic, a direct genetic comparison with it uh, and look at them, you know, next to one another. So those 14 peanuts uh, gave rise to 5 million seed three years later that were distributed to farmers throughout the South, and now it's being used for oil, for um, culinary, and the thing that I hope for is that the traditional street candy of Charleston, the uh, uh, groundnut cake, will be revived, made with Carolina African runner peanuts, uh, good milk, and uh, purple ribbon sugar cane syrup. I think Forrest Parker's working on that, isn't he? Uh, he may be. <laughs> I don't know. The, the, a candy like that has got to come back. Yeah. Um, so I guess my last question for you, and, you know, in, on back to the Sapelo Island sugar cane syrup, is how do you envision in that community specifically the syrup and the, the industry that it kind of creates? How do you see that impacting um, hog hammock in Sapelo Island going forward? I hope that there will be jobs on the island. Uh, the problem is that there's no school on the island. How do you keep young folks there? And it's a magical place. It's the most pristine maritime forest on the east coast of the United States. Uh, it has a wild herd of cattle on it. I've heard about these bulls. Uh, yes, uh, it's just a magical place. Um, my hope is that there will be a a future for that community and that they will be aware that they are the guardians of one of the great tastes, one of the great ingredients that the South ever produced. Awesome. Well, on that note, we'll wrap up. Thank you, Dr. Shields, for talking to us today about the arc of taste and all of the Amazing foods that you've worked with over your career. Oh, there's so much more. <laughs> so much more. We'll have to schedule several more hours of interview. Uh, good idea. <laughs>
All right. Well, thanks so much. Once again, my name is Kat Johnson for Heritage Radio Network. Um, this is Heritage Radio Network on tour, live from Denver for Slow Food Nations. Thanks once again to our sponsors, Hearst Ranch Beef, the Julia Child Foundation, and our friend Julie Schaefer for making our coverage of the festival possible. And we will be back shortly. <laughs>